Barbara, and I'm a very grateful recovering Al-Anon. Uh, I want to thank you so much for asking me to participate in your convention. You know, it was with, uh, it was in February of 1981 that my program began right here. And it was people like Margaret and Vivian. Um, and many others who helped me begin the journey. And I know now that the destination that I hope to reach at that time is a long way off in the future because I'm still enjoying that journey. It was with Margaret and Dave and Vivian Kay that I uh, attended my very first Al-Anon convention in Jackson Hole. That was, I believe, the second year that I was in in Al-Anon. And as I recall it, Dave wasn't real thrilled about riding all the way to Jackson Hole with three Al-Anons. <laughs> but he survived the trip, and as you can see, he's none the worse for the wear. Um, it was with Dave as the Al-Anon speaker that I first shared publicly in this program. And he was a very great support to me. I've been told over the years that he somewhat softened his views of Al-Anons. And I don't know how much, but Dave, I brought you a desire chip in case you ever want to commit to the Al-Anon program. <laughs> you know, when Margaret called to invite me to um, share my story with you, I was a little bit hesitant because I am not a public speaker. I'm not on the, the uh, circuit of program speakers. But when I thought about it and realized how much of my recovery started here, um, I thought that it might be just a good idea to accept her offer. And then when she told me that the theme of your convention is courage to change, that really made up my mind. As you will learn during my sharing, change is no stranger in my life. I have learned over the years that without change, I have no opportunity to grow. And without growth, my life is greatly diminished. And whatever courage I need to make those changes will come to me from the God of my understanding. I'd like to share with you what my life was like, what happened, and how it is now. I don't... Uh, proclaim to have any great memory, so I have brought my cheat sheet, so please forgive me if I do refer to them. I have a lot of years to cover. I've spent nearly all of my life living with and around alcoholism and drug addiction. I've had a parent, a spouse, children, and a grandchild who have used and abused. There is a very strong possibility that one of my grandfathers also was alcoholic, although that was never... Uh, it was just never said that he was. I was born during the so-called Great Depression, the second of three girls in my family in Grand Island, Nebraska. And it was a real struggle for my parents to provide to us for us during those times, you know, as it was for most people of that area. For many years, we lived in downtown apartments where my parents did cleaning and maintenance to pay the rent. My dad came from a family of 11 children born to immigrant parents from Russia. I never knew my grandmother. She died when I was three years old. But my grandfather used to make the rounds of visiting the family every Sunday. And other than him, my dad was not real close to his family. 
So he's about the only one that we really did see on a regular basis. My mother's family lived in South Dakota, and I only remember seeing them maybe six or seven times in my life. While my grandmother was very prim and proper, my grandpa always had a twinkle in his eye, and he loved to tease us. It's this grandfather that I think may have been an alcoholic. My mother didn't talk much about her family, and uh, she did imply, though, that he had been very strict and could be very mean to her when she was growing up. As far back as I can remember, there was something different about my family. We seemed to have very little bonding as a family unit, and there wasn't much love and affection shown in our home. I don't remember ever being hugged or told that I was loved by my parents. And I have checked that out with my sisters in later years, and they have the same memories that I do, so I guess I'm not off base. My parents both had a lot of physical problems. My dad had been injured very seriously when he was a young man, and he was never able to bend his knee, and he had continuing problems with the leg that required surgeries, and he would be gone for long periods of time. Hospital stays were not as short as they are in these days, and for the kind of things that he had done, you know, he might be gone for a month, he might be gone for six weeks at a time. And my mother had her share of illnesses, too. And I recall on one particular time overhearing a conversation where they were afraid that she wasn't going to make it. And no one explained to us children what was happening. I don't recall family or our friends staying with us or comforting us during those times. We were just kind of left hanging out there. And for me, there were always many feelings of loneliness and abandonment. One parent or the other would be gone, and life seemed so serious. And there wasn't really a lot of joy and laughter at our home. And I learned very early in life to stuff my feelings. Crying meant you were a crybaby, and if you showed anger, you were a hothead. And that was the label that was put on me quite often, so I guess I was the angry one in our family. We were taught that children should be seen and not heard. My dad was the disciplinarian in our family, and he did not believe in sparing the rod. There was never a chance to explain what happened. No excuses accepted, and you better not talk back. There was absolutely no question that he was the head of the household. We all said uh, how high on the way up. When, when he said jump, we all said how high on the way up. I didn't learn it was okay to make a mistake as long as I learned from it. It was never okay, and someone was always to blame. My mom was easier on us during, in this respect, but she had different ideas about how children should behave and the good manners that she expected of us. She usually left the discipline to my father, and I would hate it when she'd say, just wait till your father comes home. That waiting was forever and ever for a kid. I realize today that my parents did the best that they could with the knowledge that they had at the time, and I am grateful to them for teaching us to be responsible for our actions. You know, they could only teach what they knew, and discipline and hard work were what they knew. Because of mother's main, uh, many illnesses, we weren't allowed to bring our, our friends home to play, and we weren't allowed to go to their homes very often either. It's little wonder I didn't know how to have a healthy relationship. I had very few opportunities to develop that side of my life. I went through life depending on others for my feelings of self-worth and felt that I was falling short of their expectations so much of the time. You know, if I brought home a report card that had three A's and two B's on it, why weren't they all A's? 
I always seemed to miss a speck of dust when I was cleaning, or I would leave a wrinkle in my dad's collar when I was ironing his shirts. There was always something that was pointed out to me that I could have done better, and I learned to set my standards impossibly high. When I was seven or eight years old, my mother became addicted to prescription drugs. During one of her illnesses, she'd been given barbiturates to help her sleep, and they became uh, an escape for her, a way out of the pain of life, as she saw it. When she wasn't sick, she worked outside the home to help pay the hospital bills. You know, they didn't have insurance the way they have it today, and alcoholism and addiction was treated as mostly as a mental illness at that time, and, and the uh, periods of confinement were long and costly. I remember at least seven or eight times during my childhood when she was um, in treatment, sometimes in a private hospital, sometimes in a state hospital, always for long periods of time. And during these absences, my sisters and I were expected to run the household. By the time I was 11, I was responsible for putting dinner on the table nearly every night and helping with the cleaning and the laundry on the weekends. There were no microwave ovens. No automatic dishwashers, no washing machines and dryers. You know, you just had to use the old ringer washer and hang the clothes out on the line, and you had a gas stove to cook on. And I remember a couple of occasions when I had singed eyebrows when my youngest sister would help me by turning on the gas before I lit the match. Uh, I also learned that ringer washers and long hair are not necessarily compatible. As time went on, my mother started using alcohol along with the pills, and it was a dangerous combination for her. At one time, she weighed 89 pounds, and I remember being so afraid that she was going to die. I had no one to share my feelings with. Dad would not talk about it, and we had learned very early on not to tell outsiders what went on in our home, and we didn't even talk about it amongst ourselves. My sisters and I were not real close during our childhood. My youngest sister and I really resented our oldest sister for being so bossy, and we teased her a whole lot. You know, in later years, I realized that she was responsible for us when our parents were gone, and that could not have been very easy for her. She was a child, too. Sometimes it didn't seem that we had a childhood at all, although I can remember times when we would go to the park or we could go swimming, and we could always go to the movies. My dad was a projectionist in a theater, and we could go any time we wanted to as long as we sat where he could see us and, and he knew that we were behaving. Movies were my fantasy world, and I just loved them. And I remember Saturday matinees where they'd have a piano player, and then they'd play, have a cartoon and a serial and, and then the feature movie, and the whole theater was just full of kids. There were no adults there, and that was just wonderful. I realize now that we were all so focused on my mother's illnesses that it just blotted out a lot of the normal things that we may have done as a family. When I was a senior in high school, I met my future husband. He was handsome, he was friendly, and he was really fun-loving. For the first time in my life, I felt as though someone liked me and accepted me just as I was. No one had ever treated me as always important to them or that my opinion mattered, and I was really smitten. Right from the beginning, I put the responsibility for my well-being in his hands. I'd had so little practice making my own decisions that I was more than willing to follow wherever he led. In later years, when he didn't do things to suit me, 
I could be very critical and criticize his efforts. Now, his family was just the opposite of mine. They were noisy. They were talkative. Lots of people in and out of their home. Something going on all the time. But you know, he came from an alcoholic home too. It was his dad that was the alcoholic. Neither one of us talked much about our parents and that part of their personalities. By the time I graduated from high school, my mother had been ill for several months, and my youngest sister was the only member of my family to attend my graduation. Five months after graduation, my husband and I were married. I was only 17, and he was 18. Because we were so young, we had no money, so we moved in with his family. I was not prepared for all the noisy excitement and the lack of privacy was truly unsettling. It was not a happy time for me, but I did really like his brother and his sisters, and we still are in touch with each other today. After a few months, we moved into a two-room apartment, and then our first child arrived, and the responsibilities of parenthood became a reality. Seven months later, I was pregnant again, and my husband insisted that we move back in with his family. I tried my best to adjust, but it wasn't very easy. My mother-in-law was a very controlling person, and I was very immature. What I know today is that she was an untreated Al-Anon, and she did the best that she could, but I resented her criticisms, and I said so very often. I could not let things go. My parents had never carried on in front of us children, so I wasn't used to the constant bickering and the shouting that went on in that home, and it was disturbing. My husband was very protective of his mother. He was the oldest of six children, and she very often called on him to settle an argument when her husband had been drinking. And it seemed to weigh very heavily on him, and all I could do was stand there and feel helpless. When our second child was six months old, my husband was called into the Korean conflict. He joined the National Guard after graduation. Then he transferred to a reserve unit, and it was one of the very first ones to be called in. About six months later, the boys and I uh, joined him in California, and it was the very first time in our married lives that we were away from our families and out of that turmoil, and it was a really good time for us. Uncertain as our future was, we made the most of each day, and we just enjoyed each other. By the time he was discharged, I was pregnant again, and we returned home to his family and one more time back into all that chaos. Shortly after we returned, my mother was admitted to the state hospital for treatment of alcoholism. A couple of months after she was released, my dad filed for divorce, and it was then, I believe, that I became her chief enabler. No one asked me to take over that job. I was strictly a volunteer. But that was really a rough time for her, and she did manage to stay sober for a couple of years, and she later moved to Omaha. By this time, my husband was working on the railroad in Denver, Colorado, and our financial situation was a bit better, and we bought our first home. A few months later, he was bumped from that job, and in order to protect his seniority, we had to move to Sydney, Nebraska. Six weeks after that move, the child I was carrying was stillborn. My husband and I were never able to share our feelings about the loss of that child, and I felt very much alone. Again, I just stuffed my feelings and went on. It's, it's amazing to me how many things can happen in the midst of an alcoholic home and nobody talks about it. That elephant in the living room just gets bigger and bigger.
We made a lot of friends in Sydney, people close to our age. All of us were raising families, and none of us had other family there, so we did form a bond that was to last for many years. And we bought a home again, and things were looking up for us. And then one day my oldest sister called me and told me that my mother had overdosed and she was in the hospital in Grand Island and that I needed to go there and handle it. By now, my sister was not even speaking to my mother, and she wanted nothing to do with her. She just wanted me to get her out of her life. My mother's doctors were of the opinion that she needed to be confined to the state hospital for treatment or she would surely die. This involved signing commitment papers, and while both my sisters agreed that it was a thing to do, neither one of them was willing to take that action. This was one of the most difficult decisions I ever had to make. I know today that God was with me, holding me up through all of that, because if he hadn't been, I would have faltered, and I'm not sure I could have done what I had to do. I knew that if she didn't get help, that I could lose her. She was in that hospital for over a year. And needless to say, she was very angry with me. And it wasn't until many, many months later that she wrote to me saying that she realized that what I had done had probably saved her life and that she was grateful that I had loved her enough to take that risk. She went back to Omaha, and I believe that it was then that she joined AA. At the time, I had no idea what that meant. But if it helped her, I was all for it. She never drank again, but she never completely gave up the pills. This was not the last time she was hospitalized, but from then on, the doctors were the ones to take the action. Again, I did not discuss it outside of my family, and my husband didn't want to hear about it. There hadn't been a lot of drinking in our home for the first 10 or so years of our marriage. We didn't have much money, and we were really struggling to get ahead. My husband worked two jobs for nearly 10 years, and then I took a part-time job that worked into uh, full-time. By this time, we had six children, and the sheer physical effort it took to raise our family and to care for them was really overwhelming. But hard work had been a major source of self-worth to me. And I kept on trying to keep that perfect house, keep up with all the children's activities, and still be the perfect wife. All these standards were self-imposed. No one asked me or expected of me what I expected of myself. In reality, it was very nearly impossible and a real setup for failure. My husband worked very hard, too, but he really loved the fun times, and they were his reward for hard work. He loved planning outings and trips for our family. There were so many places that he wanted to see and things he wanted to do, and I didn't have a clue as to what I wanted to do. My thoughts were usually focused on how many loads of laundry I had to do and, and how would I manage to clean the house and take the kids here and there and meet all their needs. I had a lot of trouble having fun. Life had been such serious business for me, and it was really hard for me to relax. We had very different ideas about how we should spend our free time, and there never seemed to be enough time for the two of us. When our children became teenagers, personality conflicts and behavior problems came up that we hadn't had to face before. For those of you who have or have had teenagers, you know that raising them can be enough of a challenge without the complications that alcoholism adds to the mix. As time went on, it became more obvious that our moral values and behavior standards seemed worlds apart, 
and we really had trouble compromising. Each of us felt our way was right, and we could not or would not give an inch. We started placing blame instead of looking for solutions. I was too strict. He was so lenient, too lenient, and on the argument went. We were to go on like this, just making crazy for years without even realizing what we were doing. Our children really got mixed messages from us, and there was a lot of confusion in our home. By now, money wasn't so tight, and the partying and social drinking increased. We had a lot of parties in our home, dancing and having a good time. I drank right along with my husband and partied with him, but it never seemed to do for me what it did for him. I was always thinking of having to get up in the morning and take care of the children, and when you stay out till 2 or 3 in the morning, that doesn't leave you much time for sleep. In 1967, we moved to Cheyenne, and the bars stayed open longer here than they did in Sydney, and the drinking accelerated. I knew we were in trouble, and I didn't know what to do about it. I just kept on trying to make a, put on a front and make us all look good to the outside world. You see, I really believed that there had to be something I could do about the mess our life had become, and I kept on trying to be whatever I thought was expected of me, and that changed so often I didn't know what it would be the next day, and I couldn't keep up. Our two oldest sons graduated from high school that very next year. One went into the Navy, and the other one went off to the Air Force Academy. These two boys had given me so much love and support over the years that it was like losing my right arm. I really missed them. In November of that year, my dad passed away suddenly from a stroke. In the five years prior to his death, we had come to know each other and share a lot more of our lives and understand each other a little better. Over the years, he had not treated my husband very well, and he had all but ignored our children. So having those five years of healing and sharing had been very special for me. It was not until after his death that I learned that he had abandoned our family when my mother was pregnant with my youngest sister, and he had gone to live with a woman in Omaha. This lady became my dad's third wife, and her daughter was very near my age and looked exactly like him. This explained a lot of unanswered questions I'd had over the years. Why was my younger sister born in South Dakota when just the, the, my mother and us two girls were visiting my grandparents? And there were a lot of other things that had cropped up that had just never been answered before that. You can see why keeping secrets was so important in our home. Our oldest daughter, Linda, was a junior in high school that year, and she started experimenting with alcohol and drugs. She and I had many arguments about her behavior. To me, it was just like looking at my mother all over again, and whatever good reason I had went out the window. Linda was really a good kid, but we just couldn't seem to agree on anything. Her hair, her clothes, her choice of friends. And I have to tell you, my own behavior was so be bizarre during this time that it's embarrassing even today to even think about it. When Linda graduated from high school, she married her high school sweetheart. And we were not a bit happy about that marriage. But you see, we knew how difficult it was to be married so young. And the breach between the two of us widened. In the meantime, the situation at home got worse. The drinking continued to escalate. And my anxiety and anger spilled over onto our children. Holidays were just a disaster. And we hardly had a dinner 
when drinking wasn't involved. Then when our son was youngest son was 16, he ran away from home. It was three months before we would hear from him. By then, I was so relieved to know that he was alive and that he was okay that I just very nearly fell apart. I'd been so afraid that I might not ever see him again. He came home, but there was so much anger and hostility between him and my husband that he found it impossible to stay there, so he went to live with friends. Now, Tom and I went through a lot of painful times before we came to terms with our relationship, and I'm happy to say today that we are on very good terms. He has a lovely family, and he's really doing well in spite of me and the rest of us. Our marriage continued to fall apart, and the harder I tried to fix it, the more hopeless it seemed. The sense of failure in so many areas of my life really hit me hard. I'd been so focused on the alcoholic that I hadn't given my children much love and encouragement or the freedom to make their own choices. I hadn't always protected them from the rages of the alcoholic, and I had inflicted my own frustrations and anger on them when I was upset with the drinker. It's no wonder that some of my children experienced difficulty in their relationships. There were divorces, and some of the grandchildren I loved were no longer part of my life. I can remember thinking that if this is all there is, it just isn't worth the pain. And the only thing that kept me from acting on that line of thinking was knowing that I would hurt the ones that I loved even more. It was through my youngest child that I finally found Al-Anon. She was having some difficulties, and she came to me, and she said she just really needed some help. I took her to a counselor at mental health, and after talking with her, my daughter, he asked to speak to me and my husband, and he asked me at that session, he said, what do you think is the problem in your home? And I just said, alcohol. And I do not know today yet where that word came from. It was the first time that I admitted that drinking was causing a problem in our home. I know today how powerful denial can be and how many times I've pushed that thought from my mind. That counselor sent me to another one at Project Hope, and that lady told me I needed Al-Anon. There was a meeting that very night, and I've been coming back ever since. Now, I can still remember how scared I was those first few months. I was unable to open my mouth for fear of falling apart in front of you. I'd had a lifetime of keeping secrets and my feelings all bottled up inside of me. How could I let them out in a whole room full of strangers? What would you think of me? You know, it never occurred to me at the time that you might be there for the same reason I was. Then I started to hear you tell of where you all had been, and some of you were laughing. And I remember thinking, how can you laugh when I feel so miserable? It seemed all the humor had gone out of my life, and your laughter sounded just wonderful to me. I began to want what you had. You offered me a way out of the despair and loneliness that I was feeling. And like so many others before me, I hoped that you would show me a way to help the alcoholic to stop drinking. Instead, you told me that Al-Anon was for me. While I couldn't change anyone else, that I could learn to change my own attitudes and behaviors and find peace and happiness by living this program one day at a time. You told me that alcoholism is a disease and that I didn't cause it, I couldn't control it, and I couldn't cure it. And that was a tremendous relief for me. For so many years, I'd carried around the guilt that if I'd only been a better daughter, a better wife, a better mother, 
that this would not have happened to the people I loved. You also told me that alcoholism is a family disease and that I was sick too. And you know, looking back on it over the years, I suffered a lot of physical consequences of living with alcoholism. The sleepless nights, the worry over when the alcoholic would come home, worrying about what would happen next. I had bleeding ulcers. I had severe depression and many other things. For nearly two years before coming to Al-Anon, I had not slept the night through, and that was one of the first benefits I got from Al-Anon, was being able to sleep at night. In the beginning, I read everything that my, I could get my hands on concerning Al-Anon and the disease of alcoholism. Then I started talking to program people, Kathy and Vivian and Margaret and so many others, and I started sharing in meetings. I didn't always make sense, but you were always very patient with me and you listened to me anyway. And I bounced around the first three steps of the program for the first year or so, and I finally got the courage to write a fourth step. In doing so, I learned a lot about myself. I learned how my perfectionism, my expectation of myself and others, and my resentments had contributed to the unrest in our home, how I had used silence as a weapon, how I tried to manipulate others and how judgmental I could be. I also learned that I was a good friend. I was a loving person that I had many positive qualities as well. I learned what was true about me. I didn't move on to a fifth step at this time because, you see, while I could admit to myself and the God of my understanding who I really was, it was just too risky for me to tell another human being. Trust had been a huge issue in my life, and I just wasn't ready for this step. It wasn't until I could do a second fourth step that I finally got ready to do that fifth step and I to the steps. Today, I know that I'm never very far from the first three steps. And when something in particular is bothering me, I probably need to do a fourth and fifth step on it with my sponsor. I found out that when I truly let go and place my life and my will into the hands of God, that my life runs more smoothly and I'm at peace within myself. The people in this program taught me that I'm an important human being. I'm a part of God's plan and that he wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. You also taught me that my happiness is my responsibility, that when I put that responsibility on someone else, I'm setting myself up for disappointment. And I learned that my unhappiness is also my responsibility, and I have choices today in what I can do about it. I can call someone and talk it over. I can go to a meeting, or I can write about my feelings. I can take a look at my part in it, own it, and let go of the results. My choices are limited only by my willingness or unwillingness to help myself by using the tools of this program, by going to meetings, by working the steps, talking with my sponsor and other Al-Anons, and just trusting the process. I'd been in Al-Anon about two years when my daughter Linda entered a treatment program. She'd been through a couple of divorces, a car accident that nearly took her life, and a hospital stay for acute liver disease. She started AA, I believe, just before her third husband came into the program. You know, it's um, absolutely amazing how my higher power works. I'd been in the program several months when I met a, met a lady there, and I started talking to her. She talked about her gym, and I talked about my Linda. 
only to discover that our children were dating each other. (laughs) They were still both drinking when they were married, and Al-Anon made it possible for us to be there and not pass judgment. This dear lady, Vivian Kay, became my sponsor and a very dear friend. I spent many hours with her, talking with her, sorting things out. She gave so generously and unselfishly of her time, and to her I owe a great deal of my recovery. She taught me about letting go and letting God, about how serenity comes through surrendering my will to my higher power. And she also taught me that I have choices. That was her mantra, you do have choices. Together we saw our children go through some pretty rough times before they became sober. It was like a miracle that we could all be in a program and go to meetings together and share, and it was, it was just absolutely wonderful. My mother passed away in 1983 at the age of 78. I was alone in a small store that I owned at the time when I got the call. My husband was nowhere to be found, and all I could do was close my store and make the preparations to do what I had to do. Then I received a call from a friend of my daughter's telling me that she was drinking again and that she needed help. I told her what had happened with my mother and asked that she take Linda to the the hospital, to the chemical dependency unit. I also called my sponsor, and she reminded me to do first things first. My mother lived nearly 500 miles away at the time, and after making a few necessary phone calls to family members, I packed a bag and went on my way. Again, I just did what was in front of me, and with God's help, I made it through all the preparation, the funeral, and sorting out what few belongings my mom had with my younger sister. Our oldest sister did come for the funeral, but she left soon after. For the first time in many, many years, I felt my mother was finally at peace. And throughout those days, I felt the hand of God guiding me through all that. I was calm, and I was able to do whatever I needed to to do. And since that time, no matter what life has handed me, I have known that God would be there for me no matter what happened. I know now that when I feel lonely, it's because I've shut him out, not because he's left me. Not long after my mother died, I found it necessary to move out of my house. Several incidents had occurred that made me feel unsafe there. I'd been thinking of leaving for several weeks when I learned that a friend who was in Illinois caring for her elderly father needed someone to live in and care for her home. I called her that very day and asked her to consider me, and she said, If I would just pay the utilities and take care of the yard, I could stay there as long as I needed to. Now that was my higher power working in my life. I knew that he'd answered my prayer for guidance. I moved into her home that very next week, taking only my clothes and a few personal belongings, and I lived there for ten months and really enjoyed peace and serenity. My husband wanted to sell our home, and when that was done, I took what furnishings I wanted and I moved into an apartment. Shortly after that, I sold my business and filed for a divorce for the third time. You see, I had filed twice before, but I'd gone back wanting to believe the promises. We were separated for two years, and I had a lot of time to sort things out, talks with my sponsor, counselors of the chemical dependency unit, and praying for guidance before I made the decision to end our marriage for good. We had been married 38 years, and it was not an easy decision. 
My sponsor had often told me that when and if the time was right that I would know. And every time she told me that, I would say, but I have to make a decision. And she would say, honey, you can decide not to decide today. As it turned out, she was so right, and I did know when it was time. The divorce was final a few weeks before, uh, a few months really, before I decided to move to Houston. My two children that lived there had suggested I try it, and after much soul-searching, I decided to make the move. I'd finally learned not to jump into a situation without considering all the options, and everything pointed to that choice. Three weeks after I moved to Houston, I found a job, and about a year later, I bought my own home. And this past June, I've lived in Houston for 13 years. The first two companies I worked for in Houston went bankrupt. And each time I found another job by doing the footwork and leaving the rest to God. I was never unemployed for more than six weeks. And while none of these jobs were what I would call my ideal, they paid the rent and allowed me to live independently. I was able to retire four years ago after 32 years of full-time employment. Since then, I've had two part-time jobs that I wasn't even looking for, I guess my higher power decided that I wasn't ready to retire. I left the last one in July of this year, and we'll see what he thinks from now on. Leaving the support of my sponsor and my Al-Anon friends was the hardest part of the move. It was like stepping off a cliff, but I knew Al-Anon would be my safety net. My youngest daughter and her her AA friends were just great. They took me to Al-Anon meetings for the first few weeks until I could find my way around Houston a little better. Remember, I'd moved from a town of around 50,000 to a city of 3.5 million. Talk about change. I had been a small-town girl all my life, and that was a huge adjustment for me. Since I've been in Houston, I've been very active in service work on the group level in several capacities. I've served on the intergroup board there, and I'm still an intergroup telephone volunteer. Our intergroup office is open from 9 to 5 every day, and from 5 o'clock on, the phones are staffed by strictly volunteers. So no one has to be without a uh, someone to talk to, someone to tell them where the next meeting is, and so forth. All of this has helped so much to widen my circle of support, and I'm blessed with many, many friends in the program. I'm especially grateful for a loving sponsor. She often reminds me to lighten up and have fun. Her wonderful sense of humor, her compassion and wisdom have guided me as I have shared with her the joys and losses of my life. Seven years ago, we lost our beautiful Linda to this disease. She had been in AA for nine years, clean and sober for the last five when the effects of her drinking and drugging put her on the list for a liver transplant at University Hospital in Denver. On December 31, 1992, she received a new liver. She lived for a little over three months when complications set in and the liver failed. She was only 41 years old. In the days that followed Linda's death, many of her friends in the program came forward to tell me how she had helped them in their own struggle for sobriety. And all around me, I saw examples of how this program works. Linda had done so much good in her short life, and she was truly an example of how changed attitudes aid recovery. She and I had had many 
many occasions to share during the last few years of her life. And thanks to the program of AA and Al-Anon, we were able to put aside the past and just love each other. There was so much love surrounding our family and our grief, and that love guided me throughout the days that followed and helped me to keep putting one foot in front of the other and face the day ahead. With the help of Al-Anon and all of you, I know that I'm not alone in this life, that I have a power greater than myself who will hold me up no matter what happens. The move to Houston has been a good one for me. I've met many people there who have put new perspectives on my life. I've had opportunities to do things and go places that I might never have experienced otherwise. Today, my children and I have an opportunity to grow in our relationships. Their love and support mean so much to me, and I can be more open and honest with them. We can express our love for each other more freely. I'm learning that while my strength and independence are good qualities, it's okay to let them see my vulnerabilities and weaknesses too. They and their children are a very important part of my life, and I value every minute that we have together. Not all the members of my family have chosen recovery. Some of them are still out there. They all know about AA, and they all know what an important part of my life Al-Anon is, and they've chosen not to participate in the program just yet. My youngest daughter has been in AA for 15 years, and she works a beautiful program. And although Linda's no longer with us, her husband still comes all the way to Houston to visit me, and that's really special for me. I'm so grateful that I have been given the opportunity to do things differently. I'm not always successful and I make mistakes, but when I stub my toe, I know where the help is, and I don't stay down as long as I used to before Al-Anon. Time in the program does not mean that I have all the answers. To me, it means that I have a larger pool of experience, strength, and wisdom to draw on when I falter and can't find my way alone. My sponsor often reminds me that first we have the experience and then the lesson. And I've had a lot of experiences over my lifetime, and some of the lessons are very clear, but there are others that I'm still waiting to learn. One thing that really stands out is that we in these rooms are the lucky ones. We have a chance to change our lives by changing our attitudes and behaviors. And God will give us the courage to change when, we're, when we become willing to do that. I've learned that resentments hurt me far more than the person I'm resenting. Prayer for that person has helped me to let go and get on with my life. I've learned that I can't pray for someone and still hold resentments in my heart. I've also learned that when I do something for someone, it has to be for fun and for free. Otherwise, it's not a gift. It's just a trade. While I may never be the person I want to become, I've been taught in Al-Anon that we strive for progress and not perfection. Life will always have its ups and downs, and the real measure of who I am is not what happens to me, but how I react to those events. I don't know what's waiting for me or those I love in the years to come. I do know that today I'm loved, I do have worth, and with God's help I can live a life that is happy, joyous, and free one day at a time. I'd like to share with you a quote that's especially meaningful to me, and it goes like this. I said to the man at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, 
Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than a light and safer than a known way. I really believe that God puts people in our lives to show us the way. And along with my higher power, you have been my light in the darkness, my hope for recovery. I thank God every day for the gift of Al-Anon and all of you. And I thank you so much for being here and asking me to be a part of this convention. Thank you.